Heavenly Father, it is indeed our desire to worship you this morning and to acknowledge your great love and kindness towards us, a needy people. Thank you, Father, for revealed truth. Thank you for the inspiration of Scripture and the reliability of it and the stability that it brings our lives, the answers to the sin problem. Father, thank you for times like these where we can be challenged and we can let your Holy Spirit teach us and we can reflect upon these great realities of the marvelous wonders of your love for us. Teach us now, encourage us, strengthen us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know what you do for traditions at your, Chris, at your home at Christmas time. Uh, we have um, a few things that we do on a regular basis. Seems like our traditions go in spurts. For a while, we had uh, some close friends that we would eat supper with every Christmas Eve and had a good, good, great times looking forward to that. Seems like that's kind of fizzled out and uh, for no good reason. Time passes. For a while, we had some friends that lived in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, and we would meet them up there uh, annually and make it kind of an annual Christmas tradition to see the Charles Dickens play A Christmas Carol. Now, I know that uh, some of these stories of Christmas uh, I saw that like, uh, Snoopy and some of those were featured on TV and some of those. And, and uh, some of you have great traditions of watching a, a Christmas film and you wear the same pajamas and you drink the same kind of peppermint tea and the same night and you just have this tradition. And it, it wouldn't be Christmas without it. And for us to go to Chambersburg to see A Christmas Carol was not really like that, but we really enjoyed that for a couple years in a row. It was a great event, usually a Saturday matinee event. And I don't know if you're familiar with that story. I referenced a few weeks ago that Scrooge is my favorite character of Christmas. And uh, sometimes I emulate him, much to the chagrin of others in my household. But I I really do enjoy that story. What a well-written story, and and it has so many dynamics to it. It's great literature. But I was thinking about the transformation that takes place in that story. Are you aware of that? You know, Ebenezer Scrooge is kind of the main character. And he's an old businessman who is mean and grouchy. And all he cares about is his money. And he can't stand the children singing in Christmas carols. That all just irritates him like nails on a chalkboard. And he just wants the holiday to get over so he can get on with his business and collect rents that rent monies that are due to him by his tenants and so forth. And through the course of the story, and if you know these, these ghosts from Christmas past and so forth, and Bob Marley, his former business partner, come and visit him in the spirit and teach him and, and show him a new perspective. And his whole life is transformed. And there's such a startling contrast. I remember one line that I like, um, and it goes something like this. There's two guys at the beginning of the story that come knock on his office door. And that's when he says, bah humbug, you know, a lot that it's Christmas time and so forth. And they want him to give a donation to help some poor people. And Scrooge, he says, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? You know, why should we give to the poor? Just lock them up and that kind of thing. He's just so mean and, and, and un-Christmassy. And then by the end of the story, he's transformed and he's giving away great gifts of money. It's a great story of transformation. 
There's a lot of Christmas stories about transformation, and that one's a lot better than the one about the, rain, the, the reindeer with the red nose that gets from shy to a hero and those nonsense stories. But uh, you like that one. But um, all right, I won't say what I really think about it then right now. This morning, as, we, as I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we revisit the great story of Christmas one more time, can I remind you that the Christmas story is a story about transformation? The Christmas story is a story about lives being changed. In many ways, it's a rescue story, isn't it? It's a story about people who are really in need, and if you've been here for our Genesis series earlier in the year, you know that we are a needy people because of the great sinful fall of Adam and Eve and how that transgression is passed upon all men and, and, and God loves us and sent a rescuer. That's what the Christmas story is about, isn't it? If you've been with us for the last two weeks, we are, this is part three of an of a emphasis on encouraging us to worship this Christmas. The great call of Christmas, we talked about how to reflect the true spirit of Christmas, it means we must worship the Lord Jesus. Mary did, Joseph did, the angels did, the wise men did, Simeon did. But it's easy for us, isn't it? And we have to accept the challenge of Christmas, and that is to not be pressed into the mold of this world and miss the whole point and not be worshipers. And really, the whole reason God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to die for us was to create this transformation out of a bunch of really sinful scrooges and turn us into the models of Jesus Christ here on earth. That we would be worshipers, followers of Christ with renewal going on in our lives. And you know, you can't worship if you don't know Jesus as your Savior. I want us to read Matthew's account of this story once again. And I want us to recognize in the story the realities that are present here that move us to worship. It has a lot to do with why God did this this way and what motivated him and what we can see here in this story. Let me read from Matthew chapter 1, begin with verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together... She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Let me read that line again, can I? And you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. What a remarkable story. And 
represented within the story are just some great concepts. That when we understand these concepts, we understand the great transformation that takes place through the Christmas story, and we cannot help but be worshipers. First of all, I want us to point out that this story as a whole is a statement, number one, a statement of God's love. It tells us that people are valuable. You know, I don't know how to really illustrate it any better than in kind of a worn-out illustration that I've used, but it's a little bit like having cockroaches under your kitchen sink. And sometimes we lose perspective and we think really highly of ourselves, but when you think about the fact that our, none of our righteousnesses are of any value to God and our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, the Old Testament prophet said. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And then this holy, righteous, sovereign God somehow, in his plan of the ages, saw fit that he would send his son, the second member of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, to represent us and to live among us. Back to the cockroaches under the kitchen sink. Let's imagine we have a cockroach problem. You get up for your morning coffee, you flip on the kitchen sink, and there they go. Man, don't don't you hate that? I used to have that in the dish room when I used to work in college. Be the first one in there for breakfast, flip on the light, and there they go. But let's say this is going on in your kitchen, and it's an issue, and Mama's not happy about it. And so Dad calls the exterminator. We're going to take care of these cockroaches. But you've got a wonderful little boy. He's a delightful little boy. You love your little boy. And somehow along the line, playing with his little matchbox cars on the kitchen floor, your little boy has met the cockroaches. And he loves the cockroaches. They're his friends. He doesn't want the cockroaches to die. And let's just say somehow with his chemistry set that he got for Christmas, he figured out how he can become a cockroach. You say, wait a minute. I don't want my little boy to become a cockroach. You see, the only good cockroach is a dead cockroach, okay? I hope you're not so much of a tree hugger here that you even think cockroaches have rights, but they're part of the curse, okay? And they're they're to be exterminated, all right? And snow and ice in the Midwest and everywhere else in October means global warming, too. It all fits together, okay? Kill cockroaches, okay? And so you think, I want to smash these cockroaches, and I'm going to bring the exterminator in here, and we're going to poison these cockroaches. We're going to get rid of them. And your little boy says, no, I'm going to become a cockroach, and I want to communicate in cockroaches that I love them, and that they need to get out from under the sink, and that they can come live in my bedroom, and they can have everlasting life in my bedroom if they just follow me. And you say, Pastor Van, that is just nonsense. But let me tell you something. In a sense, you can measure the disparity between a cockroach and your little boy. They're both pretty much in the same ecosystem. You know, they have eyes, a brain, legs, I don't know how many, but, you know, something like that. You can kind of measure it. There's sort of a similarity. But listen to me. When it comes to God, there is no measurable distance between God and his value and us. He, it is infinite, the disparity between people and God, and yet God chose to become one of us. And so when we come to the Christmas story, 
One of the things we have to see is that the Christmas story, in and of itself as a whole, is a great love story. It is a statement of God's love. And it means people are valuable. A few years ago, Washington, D.C., remember the jet took off in icy conditions and it hit the river there and the bridge and there was a guy up there and stopped his car and got out and dove into the icy waters and saved a person. And we love stories like that, don't we? And that's what the Christmas story is. The Christmas story is God diving into humanity to save us when we're going to drown. And so one of the things that we have to see in the Christmas story as a motivation for our worship is that I'm a cockroach. I am a drowning victim of a huge wreck that happened in the Garden of Eden. And God sent his son to dive in for me, to become a cockroach with me, to take my sin to the cross, to literally become sin for me. He became sin for me. That I might have his righteousness. That me... And we who deserve no life receive life everlasting. Listen, it's a great love story. Turn, we know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's, that's, a, that's Christmas and Easter all wrapped in one verse, isn't it? But take a minute and turn with me to Titus chapter 3, will you please? Titus chapter 3. In Titus chapter 3, we have a wonderful statement of God's love at Christmas. Titus chapter 3, let's begin with verse 3. Follow along in your Bible closely. (coughs) Excuse me. At one time, we too were foolish. We were disobedient and deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasure. We lived in malice and envy, being hated, and hating one another. Listen, it's a great description for the world at large without Christ, isn't it? Shooting, killing, parting, caught in a trap, in a cycle of sinful behavior that that they think is pleasurable, and it ends up being their own vomit, like Proverbs says, that they return to. I've told you the story different times about a young lady years ago when I was a youth pastor, Came college student came to my office with another friend and wanted to know more about Christ and she was telling me about her life and I noticed that I could tell she'd had dental work done and she had a nice smile and everything but I, I had actually noticed her teeth and I don't know how it came up but in the course of conversation she told me that she had been at a party and she was so drunk that she had fallen down the front steps of the house and knocked out her front teeth on a cement planter at the bottom of the steps I remember thinking, wow, sounds like a great time to me. That's the sinner in his sin, isn't it? In darkness and lost, thinking you're having a great time and just really the flush is just going down deeper and deeper. And there we are, caught in our sin and transgressions. And it says, verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, that's the incarnation, isn't it? That is the reality of God in the flesh. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Listen, we worship this Christmas because it is a great statement of God's love. People are valuable. 
we're worth something to God. How can that be? How can that be? It's an immeasurable distance between God and man. And yet he cares enough to become a man. We have to marvel at that, don't we? We have to wonder at it. We cockroaches, we have to wonder why he would do it. And yet, how can we not fall on our face before him? Secondly, back to Matthew chapter 2, I want you to see in this story that it is also a statement of God's grace. Number one, it is a statement of God's love. People are valuable. Number two, it is a statement of God's grace. Sinners are salvageable. That's what we see in the Christmas story, isn't it? Look what it says. And he will give him the name Jesus. Okay, Jesus is the Old Testament, the Old Testament version. Excuse me. Jesus is a New Testament version of the Old Testament name Joshua. Okay? And it, it means the Lord saves. Okay? And he even says it in his announcement there in verse 21. Because he will save his people from their sins. What's the point? The point is, people are broken and in sin, and he's going to salvage them. He's going to redeem them. He's going to take that which was broken and messed up and turn it into that which brings honor and glory to himself. He's the great fixer of lives. How can we not worship at Christmas when we recognize how broken we are, were and how fixed we are now? Don't you love the stories of transformation in the New Testament? You know, Jesus is in a boat. He's going along, gets out of a boat. There's a steep bank. It's a crazy guy living in the tombs up there, cuts himself, was crazy, full of demons. Jesus casts out the demons. The, the pigs drowned. And a few verses later, the guy is sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, it says, worshiping Jesus. He takes a messed up person that is beyond human repair and turns him into a beautiful worshiper. God is the great savior of sinners. We have great testimonies represented in this room today, I know. And some of you did a really good job in about 25 years of messing things up. Some of you did it in about 16 years. And then all of a sudden, one day, one day, you understood what the Christmas story was about, that God had come to salvage you and keep you from yourself. How can you not be a worshiper? There's a couple more really great stories I want to look at real quick. How about, uh, let's look at a couple. Matthew 9, 13. Won't take long at all, but I need you to flip in your Bible. Matthew chapter 9. Here's a tax collector. They were despised people. At first, they looked like pretty respectable businessmen, but they're the kind of people that you really love to hate, you know? And they're really dirty, deceitful. They were arrogant. They were conniving and the whole community despised tax collectors. One was called Matthew. Look what God did with him. We're looking at his own book here. As Jesus, Matthew 9, verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. You know, we have that phrase put together a lot in the Bible, New Testament, right? Tax collectors and sinners. It's like, that's the bottom of the barrel. Tax collectors and sinners, right? Came and ate with him and his disciples. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, 
Look now. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Okay, here's the incarnation. Here's Christmas. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Why did Jesus come? Why was Jesus in the manger? Why did he do all this? So that he would qualify to take our sin to the cross and God would accept him and him alone as the perfect sacrifice, the payment, the one who would be our sin bearer. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. There's another tax collector. It's an interesting story. Luke chapter 19. Will you turn there with me quickly? Matthew, Mark, Luke 19. Oh, this guy's really familiar if you've been around church world very long. If you were in Sunday school, we even have a song about this guy. Remember the wee little guy? He's a tax collector too. See, people hate these guys. You don't know why. You see, they sold out to Rome. They'd sold out to Caesar. They'd sold out to the governmental system. Because, see, if the government sent their own emissary in from another, from headquarters, they didn't know the territory and they didn't know the people. So when they're going door to door to collect their taxes, people would lie to them. How many head of cattle do you have? Got three. Two are dry. One barely gives us enough for milk for our cereal. And the guy's got 19. So he gets taxed on three. Or how much land do you own? I own three acres and he owns 30. Whatever. He didn't know. How does he know? He has to kind of look around. So what they would do is they would get local people who grew up there, who everybody knew. They knew everybody. They were part of the community. And they would get them to sell out. It's a little bit like Chicago politics. Okay? And what would happen is these local guys who lived there, they knew, they knew that your Uncle Jed willed you the 70 back acres and that it was yours. And even though you tried to make it look like it wasn't yours, it was yours. And he knew when he come knocking at your door, I need taxes. I've counted your cattle. I know how much land you had. You couldn't schnooker the guy. The other thing he had permission to do was get as much out of you. He could overcharge a percentage for his own wealth. And so people hated this guy. He was, a, he was sneaky. He was a conniver. He, he was against the neighborhood in a sense. It was them against us. He's a tax collector. I can't, I can't hardly make a living as it is. And then this guy's coming and squeezing me, threatening to take away my home. Going to be up for sale on the county courthouse steps. We got issues here. And then this, this little guy here. Remember the song in Sunday school? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And then one day the Savior came, I'm messing up the words, and Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. Right? It's a classic. It'll never go out of style. Jesus entered Jericho, 19.1 of Luke, and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be a guest of a... What's the next word? Sinner. 
a sinner. You see, they saw a worthless sinner. Jesus saw a transformation ready to take place. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Listen, this was not a works salvation. But Jesus, he was in the... He was in process of being transformed by the power of Christ and his encounter with Christ. And because of that, he was yielding over to Christ. I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Verse 10. Here's the, here's the Christmas story. Here's the incarnation. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Why did he come to Bethlehem? Why was he born? He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Listen, we cannot help but worship, can we? When we recognize that the Christmas story is not only a statement about God's love and people are valuable, but it's a statement about God's grace and sinners are salvageable. Worthless schmucks like Zacchaeus. Jesus took them. And he becomes a great guy that everybody loved. It'd be great to pause right now and hear some stories, wouldn't it? Any worthless schmucks out there that God has turned around in process? That's the Christmas story, my friend. You can't help but worship, can you? When you recognize the statement of God's grace, receiving the undeserved favor of him coming and taking our sin because sinners are salvageable. We read on in Matthew chapter 1 now, back to Matthew 1, and notice what it says. His name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. That's a statement of his grace. Sinners are salvageable. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. I don't know about you, but when I read the Christmas story, one of the ways that I am motivated to worship and it lifts my spirit is to recognize that in the course of the incarnation, we have the very authentication of Scripture. Number three, the Christmas story is a statement of God's word. Scripture is reliable. We have in the Christmas story a statement about God's word. What do I mean by that? I mean that a thousand years before he ever came, they pinpointed the spot. The prophets said, um, Isaiah said, a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14, a virgin will conceive and bring forth a child. What's that all about? And there it is. And then the prophet Micah 5, 2 said, it will be in Bethlehem. And there it is. Take a minute and turn to John chapter 7. I told you you'd turn a little bit this morning. John chapter 7. I referenced this verse last week. And I want you to see how clearly they understood from the Old Testament prophets exactly how the Messiah was to come. John chapter 7. Look at verse 40. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Look at verse 42. Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family 
and from Bethlehem in the town where David lived. Listen, it's not a fraudulent text. There's no way that by chance the prophetic passages are true. They knew it then. The reason they were questioning what was going on is because they so much understood and believed the Old Testament Bible that they knew it had to be a certain way because the Scripture said so. And then now it happens exactly that way, and we can't help but be in awe, can we? Say, man, I love my Bible because it always fits together. I love my Bible because as God speaks to us, it always just reveals how things really are. And there it is. Dozens of, literally dozens of prophecies about Jesus come together in fulfillment. And so we worship. The Christmas story is a statement about God's word, and it is reliable. For conclusion, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2 now. Finally, I want you to see that the Christmas story moves us to worship because it is a statement of God's goodness to us. It is a statement of God's goodness. Don't you love it when somebody's good to you? Somebody in church told me this week that their husband got up early and brought them a cup of tea in bed. It wasn't me. And they were just talking about how good their husband is. And it moved them. They appreciated it. It touched their heart. Stop and think how good God is to us. He's good to us. Out of his goodness, he did what? I want you to see here in Hebrews chapter 2, as we have a direct reference as to why Jesus came to earth and the incarnation, there are a number of things that God has done for us that are so valuable. Let's just look at chapter 2, verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Since the children have flesh, we're jumping into the middle of a passage, but since the children of God have flesh and blood, he too, that would be Jesus, shared in their humanity. That's the incarnation. He shared in their humanity, God putting on flesh. We say incarnation. Karna means meat, flesh, right? He shared in their humanity so that by his death, whose death? Jesus' death, he might destroy him, who's him? He'll explain in a minute, who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Isn't God good to us? Jesus put on flesh to grow up, to go to the cross, to die, to be buried in a tomb, to rise again so that he could say, like he did in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life, so that we can say, oh, death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? I am no longer intimidated by death. Why? Because Jesus came to be born. And through his death, somehow he was spiritually able to conquer Satan. Satan is conquerable. Death is faceable. We can challenge death head on. Did you catch what Wayne LeHue said in his letter earlier? And what a testimony he was of this. I was in there an hour before they opened up the top of his head, the size of a throwing horseshoe. He was cracking jokes and laughing, and we had a season of prayer together, and he was calm and no fear whatsoever in him. He said, 
I went to our Heavenly Father and asked Him for the peace that passeth all understanding, and I can say it was given to me instantly. I had no fear and was at complete peace throughout this whole ordeal. I'll tell you something. There are a lot of people from Wall Street to Hollywood who have a lot of money, who, who do a lot of different things, and one thing they cannot do is they can't get enough stuff that when they're on their deathbed, they wouldn't give it all away to be able to say what Wayne LaHue said when he was going into brain surgery. And they're terrified. That's why they make fools out of themselves, trying to look years younger, partly. They're afraid of death. They're afraid of what they're becoming. They're afraid of losing life. And death is so intimidating. And Hebrew, the writer to the Hebrews said, look, since the children of God have flesh, he became flesh and shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That's the devil. He conquered death, hell, and the grave for us when he came to be born, to go to the cross, to go to the grave, to rise again, to ascend back into heaven. That's a powerful reality. That's a powerful reality. That is a, that is a reality that needs to drive us to worship. You do not today have to be afraid of the devil or death. What is that worth? Praise God. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Do you believe that? Paul said, I long to be here to exercise my gift and to encourage you, but I also long to go to be with Jesus, which is, and the NIV translates it, better by far. Why? Because one day when he was walking down that road to Damascus, he was a murderer. The light came from heaven and slammed him down and God said, that's enough. I want you to be one of mine now. He becomes this great missionary of the light, a great follower of Christ. And the reality of the incarnation became true to him and he becomes a worshiper of Christ. And death no longer has a sting. Oh, it's still ugly, let me tell you. And we all know that. We don't like the process, but we don't have to have fear. The incarnation is a statement of God's goodness because Satan is conquerable, death is faceable. It goes on, look what he finishes, verse 16. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, look, here's the incarnation again. He had to be made like his brothers, that's us. Following the resurrection in the New Testament, Jesus begins to relate to us as brothers and sisters, joint heirs with Christ. It's a marvelous truth. Before that, he never did that. But after the resurrection, he did. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What's he saying here? That word, the phrase in the, in the NIV, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people is a great King James theology word. It shouldn't be taken out. He became the propitiation for our sins. Matt White was supposed to be here today and I was going to have him pray. I bet my house he would have said something about propitiation in his prayer. He's fired up about propitiation. And he's in Bible college learning lots of good things. What's it mean? 
It means taking away, taking away the weight of responsibility and putting himself in that place. Redeeming us, the atoning sacrifice. He's the one that, that fulfills the demand. God had a demand, we couldn't meet it, and Jesus becomes that propitiator. He becomes the one who steps in and fills it up for us. That's a powerful reality, isn't it? And so now, I no longer have to be afraid to approach a holy and righteous God. Remember last week we talked about Uzziah touching the side of the ox cart and being struck dead and so forth. He has invited us into his presence. Why? Because Jesus, through his incarnation, has become our high priest. We are now identified in Christ when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, and God is approachable. God is approachable. He goes on to say in verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. That's Jesus. Because of the incarnation, Jesus can relate to where you are today in your struggles. Isn't that interesting? He who knew no sin, but he understands temptation, he understands hunger, he understands sleep deprivation. He understands weariness of soul. He understands the demands that people can put on you. He understands misunderstandings. He understands what it is to go without. He understands what it is to have plenty. He understands temptation at all levels, yet without sin. But it says right here in verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's us. And that's all because of the incarnation he has become available to us as a helper. Hebrews chapter 4 says, we are invited to come boldly into his presence and that we have a high priest who is ever present, ever present in a time of need. Do you know that Jesus is available to you today? You don't have to walk the journey alone. Did you catch what else Wayne said? I didn't really plan to use it, but it fits well. He said he had this embolism, this... Um, uh, blood clot that passed through his body and he said I ended up fighting for my life the next 10 days as I was getting well I felt a battle that was going on in the spirit world and when things would get dark for me I would crawl up in Jesus arms and get my strength from him that's his way of saying what it's his way of saying that he had a high priest who could relate to his burden and his struggle in the darkest hour of the night when he's all alone in the hospital and he's burning with fever and he thinks he's going to die and he can sense the powers of darkness fighting for his life. Some of you maybe have been there before that he could turn to Jesus. Jesus was available. That would not be true according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 if it weren't for the incarnation. That's what we see in the Christmas story, isn't it? A high priest who can come and relate to us. I don't know if you've worshipped this Christmas. God calls us to worship him. It's part of why, it's the main reason why Jesus came, is to create worshipers, followers of him. This story, the Christmas story, should move us to worship because it's a statement of God's love and people are valuable. It's a statement of God's grace and sinners are salvageable. And it's a statement of God's word. Scripture is reliable it's a statement of God's goodness to us because Satan is conquered, death is faceable, God is approachable, and Jesus is available. That's a pretty decent package, wouldn't you say? I wonder if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior today.
probably almost all of us in this room are going to exchange gifts at some level. This week, and let's say we're down in Mamaw's family room next to the wood stove where for 23 years I have opened my gifts on Christmas morning and I uh, lost my buck pocket knife. Lost it to a good friend over here. And uh, I have Jonathan's in my pocket. He wasn't too happy. He was in the early service when he found out I'd been carrying it. <laughs> and so let's say Janet buys me a pocket knife for Christmas. And she gives it to me. And I open it and say, honey, thank you. I really needed my buck. I needed a new buck pocket knife. And then I dig in my sweat pocket. Hey, I got some money. This, let me give you $15 for that buck knife. It's only worth 10 but I'll give you 15 I love having that knife. Would it be a gift? You wouldn't do that, would you? You don't do that at Christmas morning or Christmas Eve, whenever. You don't have your family gathered around the tree, and you don't have your gifts opening and your gift exchange and say, well, let me pay you. Let me give you. You shouldn't do that. Let me, let me reimburse you. You, sh- you don't. Why would you? It, it, it embarrasses the giver, and it frustrates them because I wanted to give you a gift. Don't, don't try to buy it. But you know, a lot of people, God is here today, this week, trying to give you a gift. He wants you to open it up. It's Jesus. He's available. He loves you out of his kindness. We already looked at it. Out of his grace, he wants to save you. He has a gift that he'll give you. You just take it and open it and take it and go with it. He'll change your life. Sinners are salvageable. He he delights in that. And a lot of us are trying to be good enough. Well, I'm going to really start living for Jesus when I... I've got to do this. I've got this bad habit. I've got to really get organized before I can do it. No! Take the gift, open it, and let him change you. Stop trying to work for your salvation. Stop trying to be good enough so God will let you into heaven. You can't be good enough to get into heaven. It's a free gift. Titus 3.5. He did what? But out of his love and his kindness, he came, right? Remember Romans 5.8? But God commendeth or demonstrated his love for us in that what? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the incarnation. I invite you today to accept the free gift of God's salvation. Just take it. Stop working for it. For by grace, we are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Do you know Jesus today? Do you know his love and his kindness? Do you know his grace? Do you get excited with the reality of the truth of the word? Do you know what it is to have such a high priest? Do you know what it is for Jesus to be available in your darkest hour? That's what the incarnation was all about. What a gift. Take it today, my friend, would you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this great story that we've reviewed once again. But Father, we do want to be worshipers, so transform us from the inside out. For those here who need to put it all together, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be convicting and prodding and that you will open their mind to these truths so that they have meaning and maybe someone for the first time realizes why Jesus came. I pray, Lord, you'll save their soul this morning. Salvage them. Redeem them, make them new. Thank you for Jesus Christ becoming our atonement, our sacrifice.
taking our place when we were in such need. Father, do your work in us. May we have a confidence and a willingness to invite Jesus in today. It's in his name we pray.